Thanks be to God. Good to see you this morning on our post-Easter Sunday. And what a wonderful week it was last week and starting at Palm Sunday the week before, celebrating the most important event in history and the most important person in our lives and in the universe, our Lord Jesus Christ. Today we are back to the letter of 1 John, this ancient text written to a church and to Chelton. I want to thank the Tardio family, Courtney and AJ, for reading our scripture today. And if you, uh, did, did you hear in the scripture reading something that sounds like uh, warfare, cosmic, antichrist, spirits? So, uh, to get ready for my sermon today, I asked a few of our families at church what their favorite fiction stories, books, movies might be that deal with the battle between good and evil. So here's what I have. The Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, Star Wars, Lion King, Wing Feather, Redwall, Zelda, Peter Pan, Lord of the Rings, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe Avengers Endgame. And there's probably more you can think of too, right? And I had to whittle down this list just to give you these few. Now, why is that? That our culture, not just in our day, but even going back as far as we can go, is filled with literature that talk about good and evil, and there's something in us that really wants evil to be trounced and stopped and ended, right? You ever wonder why all the stories that really work and that we love to hear repackaged go that direction? Well, I, I think the reason is because there is a real story from which all of these are echoes and reflections, and that that story is somehow embedded into the image of God put on every single person. We kind of know it by instinct. And because they reflect that ultimate story, I'd like to at least remind you what that is for a moment. The nonfiction, real story of the universe is one that starts like this. God created everything good. He created a universe and an earth, and he put his representatives, King Adam and Queen Eve, to live, to reproduce, and to reign for him. But then there was this upstart, this serpent, this Satan who came in to attack, to spoil, and to destroy both the world and the humans in the world. What that meant was that God, who could have just, right, finished it, restarted, no, the story goes that he planned to redeem what was fallen, to fix what was broken, to restore paradise. And in the Bible, what starts as a garden becomes a city. What starts as Adam and Eve becomes a people. And that's the story that is the background 
for our lives. That's the story that's all about not just you and me, the people that we see, but it's about God who we cannot see, Satan who we cannot see, and angels, spirits, spirits that serve the holy God and spirits that serve the fallen devil. We're, I think, not as aware of that conflict as we should be, but need I remind you that the Bible is filled with stories of this? Not enough to answer all our questions for sure, but enough to make us say, oh, you know what? There's mystery here. I, there, there's truth here. I better follow God. Let me just remind you of a book that you probably know quite well, the book of Job. You know how that starts, right? Describes Job having a great life, big family, everything going well, and then the scene moves to heaven where God is in His heavenly council, and the spirits, all of them are there, good and bad. And God says to Satan, have you seen Job? Notice God started it, right? And what does Satan say? Well, no wonder he's got a great relationship with you. You gave him a good life. <laughs> Take away his life, and I bet he curses you, right? And then the story goes on from there. As we read the book of Job, we know that that's the setting for the story of Job's, could we say, his testing. But Job didn't know that. There's another story that to me is just such a brilliant manifestation of the other world that's all around us, and it's in the book of Second Kings, and it talks about a prophet named Elisha. God's prophet was revealing military secrets from the enemy to his own king, and I'd like to read you this conclusion in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. This enraged the king of Aram, that's Syria, and it says he summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of Elisha, the man of God, got up, and went out early the next morning. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. They were there. The angelic army was there, but the servant couldn't see them. So what's around us that we can't see? Well, the Bible would call them spirits, spirits from God, spirits from Satan. And how does Satan fight this cosmic war with his evil spirits? Well, he uses every opportunity to get his evil message across. And he does it when we constantly hear words that contain hidden inner spiritual messages about this cosmic war. They're designed to attract us with something that is good. And there's a hidden hook inside that's meant to destroy us. These messages come from many, many places. We're bombarded with them. At school, in the social media that we may look at, at uh, movies, entertainment, watching the news, listening to our music that we prefer, commercials that will try to present something to you that will say things like, you are really worth it, or you need this to satisfy your desires. These, these messages present the need, but embedded inside, almost like a computer virus, you know, inside an email or a, something you click on. It's, it's there, and it's that, that that we have to be careful of, because in the war, those are the sleeper cells that Satan sends out to ruin us, to destroy us. This is nothing new. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.4 said this to the church at Corinth, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That church was very gullible, and we better not be. So today, we will find out from John how he told that ancient church and our church how to detect false messages from false spirits. Because how do we really know, right? How do we know which is right, which is true, which is false? So read with me again uh, the first three verses of 1 John chapter 4. Once I get to it. The, pay, the uh, air conditioner up here tends to blow my pages back and forth. There we go. Okay. Verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You see his first call? He just says it. Don't be gullible. Don't believe anyone and everything as if it's from God. He says, test it. Test it out. And did, did you see the way he, he links the prophet, the voice, the message, and he says, there's a spirit behind that message, and behind the spirit, of course, is the devil or God. Evil messages come from evil spirits that can be traced back to the evil one. And he says, we must learn to discern. We must train ourselves to see through the outer message into the spiritual source behind that outer message, whether it's God or Satan. And the test, the only test, the best test that he gives in verse 2 is, what is the messenger saying about Jesus, his person and his work? You notice he, he says there, Ask them, or ask yourself, do these people who are telling you this message say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? You think about that. Jesus has come. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, the eternal God, has come, that's the incarnation, in the flesh, in the body. So, what he's saying is, ask, do these people confess that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, all in one person? But there's more, because it's not just do they believe in the, in the incarnation and in the person of Jesus, but why is that? We're not just looking at a freeze frame of Christmas <laughs> or the life of Christ, right? We're saying... In the purpose of God, that story that's the cosmic love story of God rescuing his people, why did he come? How did he come? From whom did he come? It's not just the person of Jesus. It's also the saving mission of Jesus. You put all that together, and that's what John says is the litmus test, the most important truth about any message is Christological. And what John says is, they better have a comprehensive Christology. You like that phrase? <laughs> That's a way of saying they've got to go through Holy Week like we just did, right? It's not just, oh yeah, Jesus died, but why did Jesus come? He is our King. He lived a perfect life. He died a death for sinners. He rose. The new creation came initially. He's reigning now, and he will come again to defeat Satan and evil and establish the kingdom of God with his bride forever. That is our most important truth that the Christian church lives on.
or collapses under like a house of cards if you deny any part of it. And that's why Satan fights it so much in so many ways, because he knows that Jesus is his enemy. He knows that Jesus defeated him on the cross and that Jesus is rescuing people right now from Satan's fingers as he tries to hold on to them. And he also knows that Jesus is coming back to give him eternal judgment in the lake of fire, and he knows that his time is short, as the book of Revelation says. You see, the world's salvation hinges on Jesus Christ, and the message about him, who he is and what he's doing, must be clear. That's why it's so urgent, John says, to make sure you're listening to the right message. I'd like to take a moment and remind you that when John was writing 2,000 years ago, he's writing in about the year 90, so the church has been around for about 60 years, a full generation. And uh, John, like Paul, starts to see problems emerging in the church, and then after the New Testament was finished being writing, we have writings from other church leaders that develop some of those issues and problems. Let me sketch three of them for you. First, the one thing that John does seem to, to talk about is an emerging Gnosticism. Have you ever heard of that word? It's kind of... We don't talk about it much, but in the ancient world, boy, this was the big religion. Uh, it was starting in the first century, but it really developed in the second century. And the bottom line about it, even though it was so diverse, was this. The world around us is a shell, is a shadow, and it's not worth much because it's dying, it's decaying, and... Uh, what really matters is the inner person, the spirit. So, the Gnostics had a Gnostic Jesus. But that Gnostic Jesus didn't have a real body. They were explaining, and we have many of their texts that have been discovered in the last hundred years, that say when Jesus came, he was a phantom, he was a ghost. He looked like a person, but he really wasn't. He came from another time, another dimension, to call people by a special knowledge, gnosis, to redemption and salvation and enlightenment. So the body didn't really matter. The world doesn't really matter. It's the people in the know who know about themselves that's the important thing. Now, does that sound vaguely familiar? People don't call it Gnosticism today. I don't know what they call it. Personal identity. Isn't that what we're hearing about today? You are not your body. You are not what other people tell you you are. You can be whomever you wish to be. You can construct and create your identity. It doesn't matter what your body is, what your background is, or what other people say about you. And you can change that at will. That's an expression of this idea of the inner person is the creator and the savior, just like Jesus. 
There was another thing that cropped up in the early church, and it was called Ebionism. The Ebionites, you may not have heard of these people, they said Jesus was human, but that's all. He was just a great teacher, a prophet. And they believed in Jesus, but it was another Jesus. And we have religions like that today, like Judaism. Many of my Jewish friends say, oh, we respect Jesus, Yeshua, the prophet. But to call him God? <laughs> Please, there's only one God. That's what my Muslim friends say too. Then there was a third teaching that was around, and it was, it was started actually by, the past, by a pastor of a church in Egypt. His name was Arius. And he said, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was God, but he was not the same as the Father since he's the Son. And sons, we all know, come from their fathers. So there was a time when Jesus was not. He was born. He is a created God under the real God, Arianism. Now, it's not the same as white supremacy, Arianism. <laughs> That's with a Y. This is with an I. This is taught today by Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and probably other groups who want to have some sort of spiritual Jesus, but not real, only God Jesus. These are false religions. They continue to be on the opposing side in the cosmic war against God and the gospel. And in some way, they're uh, kind of easy to spot, right? Because I'm not making this stuff up. You search any of these terms, and you'll see they're saying exactly what I've put down here. It's not a secret. This is their view of Jesus. They deny his person as fully divine and fully human, or they deny some of his work on the cross and the empty tomb. And that's why the ancient creeds have much material on Jesus' person and his work. That's why Chelton's statement of faith that all our pastors and members adhere to and support, I think we have three points that talk about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. It's pretty clear. But I would like to push in on something that may make us a little uncomfortable. It's one thing to point your finger and say, yeah, out there are those deniers of Jesus, and we should recognize them, but could we point the finger inside the church, even at ourselves, for a moment? See what you think if I suggest that saying the right words about Jesus, like we believe this, that's good, but it's just the beginning. We better acknowledge not just the facts about Jesus, our Lord and Savior, but that He matters in our lives. He is our Lord, and we live that way. What I'm trying to say is when we put anyone or anything else in Jesus' place, we are substituting Jesus 
with another Christ. We are having a functional anti-Christ. This is a subtle way of denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to save us and transform us. And there's a cosmic war going on for our souls, and we better recognize that it's not just out there, but it's in here where our battles in our souls happen, which means that everything that you and I hear is either a spirit calling us to Jesus or not. Every time you turn on your TV or watch a movie or listen to the news, listen to the radio, visit websites, you are under assault. See, they are speaking something that sounds good, maybe, or maybe not. But when it sounds good, we say, oh, it must be good. But what John is telling us to do is to pierce through that shell on the outside and see what the core is. See if there's a hook in there, an inside meaning that's really meant to be like a computer virus that takes over and destroys your life. Now, let's just take what may be a harmless example. Let's say you see a beauty product advertised. Well, what could, what could, what could be wrong with that, right? If, if you want to look better, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing. We, we should try to, right, be as healthy and... Um, Nice-looking, I guess, as, as possible, right, to avoid offending people, and uh, why not? So, except if, if you pierce through the shell there, maybe the message is youth is good and old is evil. Now, chase that one down a little bit. What do you mean youth is good? Youth is a permanent good thing. And if you're not that way, you should be because young people look great, live great. And if you're not like that, you should try to be as much as you can be. Is that the message of Jesus? Christ, who's come in the flesh? Isn't the message of the gospel... First of all, yeah, youth is good, but so is transition, so is growth, so is, I'll say it, old age. What's wrong with it? The book of Proverbs, I can say this one now, talks about gray hair. And it puts it in a positive light, right? It doesn't mean you shouldn't color your hair, but I'm just saying that the Bible recognizes that life is a gift from God. Growth is part of our human existence. Going to heaven with Jesus is the transition. Death is not something to be feared because Jesus has removed the sting of it. So bring on what you may. That is, a, is the real gospel compared to the youth 
gospel embedded inside an appeal to beauty products. See that? Any person, even, that you put above Jesus, any person that you give ultimate love and devotion to, you're giving ground to the invading antichrists. It could be a friend, a child, a spouse, a counselor. So think of it for a minute. You have a relationship with someone they make you feel good. You enjoy being with them, close. And then something comes up, fractures the relationship. Your life is devastated, empty. So what do you do? You look for maybe another person to fill that hole if this person just can't be rehabilitated. That, or what if they get sick? and die. That relationship will end eventually. Nothing wrong with friends, children, spouses, people. No, we need them. But when they become a substitute for the one person who has loved us immensely from before the foundation of the world, who keeps us and carries us and will be with us forever, that's an anti- Jesus relationship. The bottom line, my friends, is that Satan wants us to have idols that are not Jesus. These idols ignore his person and his saving work since Satan has his own way to salvation. What does he do? Well, he, he sends messages to us with a hook inside, camouflaged as a real need. And John says, test the spirits. Test what you hear. C.S. Lewis wrote, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Now, this is not an easy fight, is it? It's not easy to do this. You might already be discouraged at the call this morning, wondering, you know, how can I really fight when we're just overwhelmed, bombarded with messages from the evil one? And in one sense, you know, you should be afraid if you're looking at it on your own. <laughs> but there's something very different about this war, and verses 3 through 6 describe the difference. Look at verse 3, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 6. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore from the viewpoint, and they, therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This may sound too good to believe, but in this battle, this cosmic war between Satan and God, 
We've already won. We have overcome. That's what verse 4 says. Paul said it this way in Colossians 2. Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by His cross. That's what Holy Week is all about. It's a victory. And that initial victory will secure the final defeat as described in Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet had been thrown. Yes. We're, we're living in between. I know, we'd all wish. Well, hold it. If Jesus really died, really overcame them, why are we still in the battle? Well, look, I'm just telling you the story. I'm not writing you the story. This is true. We are called to fight, but we're fighting a defeated foe who's not totally destroyed. So that means we've got to learn to fight with the mind of a victor. Like Jesus, we are now more powerful than the forces of darkness, not because of our power, right? But what did verse 4 say? Because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. The triune God is in His people. That's mysterious, but it is true. And if we fill our minds with unfiltered messages, we're going to be confused and defeated. You know, I think we've become addicted to listening without discerning, to hearing without sifting. Reminds me of a story I heard once about a man, we'll call him Walter, who uh, had a few friends of his he was talking to, and <clears throat> there was an argument between two of them, and after Walter listened to one argument, one side of the argument, he said to his friend, you're right. And after listening to his other friend's argument, Walter nodded and said, well, you're right too. And a third friend who was listening was exasperated and said to Walter, that's absurd. They both can't be right. And Walter sighed and said, you're also right. <laughs> you ever feel that way? Like, I'm tired of making decisions. We're being overwhelmed with messages from people and the media and all this stuff. You're calling me to fight? Yes, because your soul is at stake. There's a war going on. It's not a virus. It's not national. It's spiritual. I don't want you to be a casualty in this war. That means we need to remind ourselves and remind each other about the truth that is the key to victory. Fighting as a victor is a mindset that changes the way we struggle. If you know you're on the winning side, it brings confidence, not in yourself, but in your conquering king. I'd like to conclude 
by reminding you of one of Lewis's books that I referenced at the beginning. Of course, the large set, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, in the, at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you know the story, you remember the children cry out that Aslan is alive? Remember that? He's real, not a ghost, and the, the girls are overjoyed, and they throw themselves on him, kissing him repeatedly. And when they calm down, Susan asks this question, but what does it all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, that the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's Lewis's way of describing this mystery of a victory that is accomplished but not finished yet. Though there are more battles to be fought in Narnia, the time will come when the children will truly live in happiness. They will enter the great adventure like a book where every chapter is better than the one before. And so will our lives be. Lord Jesus, and Father, and Spirit, uh, we enter this world already at war. Thank you for redeeming us, rescuing our souls. Thank you that you have now called us to be fellow combatants to test the spirits. And may we never have functional anti-Christs that will destroy us. May we shine brightly as people who have overcome. In Jesus' name, amen.